Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling retired from the U.S. Army in January 2013 and recently served as Senior Vice President at Florida Hospital. He is now an advisor to the Advent Health Leadership Institute, where he designed and teaches a physician and healthcare strategic leadership development program. His Growing Physician Leaders was published in May 2016. Mark served in the U.S. Army for 38 years as a tanker and cavalryman, commanding at every level from the tank platoon to field army. He finished his army career as the commanding general of the U.S. Army Europe after leading over 60,000 soldiers and partnering with the armies of 51 other nations. He served a total of 38 months in combat, including a tour commanding the U.S. Army's 1st Armored Division and Task Force Iron in northern Iraq for 15 months during the surge. He was also the first commander of the U.S. Army's initial military training command, where he, re- he revamped basic training for incoming soldiers, and is also commanded at each of the Army's three training centers. Among many of Mark's awards and decorations are the Distinguished Service Medal, several Bronze Stars, the Purple Heart, the Parachutist Badge, and a number of other awards of international governments, including Romania, Poland, Germany, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait. In 2019, Mark received a doctorate in business administration from the Crummer School of Business at Rollins College, where his thesis addressed the efficacy of a formalized leadership program for physicians and healthcare administrators. After retiring from the Army, Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling was appointed by President Obama as one of the 25 members to the President's Council on Fitness, Sport, and Nutrition. Mark serves as an advisor to the nonprofit organization Mission Readiness in California, as well as Operation Gratitude in Washington, D.C. He's an adjunct scholar at West Point's Modern War Institute, serves as the executive member of the Dean's Alliance at the School of Public Health of Indiana University, and is an adjunct professor of strategic leadership at the Kermer School of Business at Rollins College. He is a senior military and national security analyst for CNN and CNN International. Mark has been married to his best friend, Sue, and they have two sons and five grandsons. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We are so excited today to have Dr. Mark Hurtling with us. Mark, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, and thank you so much for having me on today. Appreciate being with you. Yeah, we're really glad you were able to come find some time to interview with us. So, um, you mentioned that you were, or we, we found out that you weren't a medical doctor. So that kind of begs the question of how did you get involved with medical leadership? Well, it, it, it's a short story that I'll make kind of long. Uh, but uh, I had a background uh, in the Army as, as an armor officer, a tanker. And uh, at a certain point in your career, after you've done all the things they want you to do, they send you on what's called uh, a preferred assignment. And my assignment was going to be teaching at West Point. Uh, before they sent me there, they sent me to grad school to get a master's degree. And, and my degree was in physiology and kinesiology. So I got really uh, stoked about uh, studying uh, in an anatomy class and a physiology class and all the related classes at Indiana University where I got my master's and really got turned on by a study of the human body and, and actually taking a lot of courses with pre-med students, doctors, nurses, and uh, it was just a, a lot of fun. After that assignment, back when I was a captain, I went back to the Operational Army, continued to do other things, had some input in the Army physical training program and holistic health program, 
And um, then when I retired, just in 2013, I was recruited by a healthcare organization uh, to do something they, they called a uh, global partnering initiative. The organization I work with is a uh, nonprofit uh, faith-based organization, and they were attempting to bring healthcare to other countries of the world, while at the same time, they wanted me to, to glean uh, some things that they might incorporate within our healthcare system that would make it less expensive for, for U.S. citizens. Uh, in fact, the, the, the CEO, when he asked, when he recruited me to do this, he said, he said, I, uh, I asked him, I said, you know, I'm not a doctor when he was recruiting me. And he said, yeah, we know that. He said, but Disney has told us to hire somebody like you. Disney's one of our corporate partners. Mm -hmm. And he says, because we need uh, a military guy because we know healthcare, but you know how to invade other countries. So we're depending on you to get involved in other countries and work through the embassies. And, and I did that for a couple of years. Well, in being part of the organization, uh, my office was right next door to the chief medical, organ, uh, chief medical officer of the system. And he would always come into my office and we'd share. We became really good friends. And, and one time he, he said, you know, we've been trying to establish a leadership course here for about 10 years. And it's always failed. We've always hired consultants. And, and now we've got a guy who's done leadership his whole, his whole life. Would you be interested in putting a program together and maybe teaching our doctors leadership? So it became an additional duty for me. Uh, and uh, once a month, I would teach this course that I designed and, and executed it for uh, an eight-month eight period of time for 50 doctors, nurses, and administrators, a, a mixed group, an interprofessional group, which I found later on is the name for that. And it seemed to start turning the culture around a little bit. One of the reasons I think it started turning the culture is because it allowed physicians to become uh, someone who's sitting at the table where strategic and operational decisions were made. And I think in since doing research on this subject, I found that there's a whole lot of healthcare organizations where doctors and administrators don't get along very well. There's, there's a distrust between those two groups. And, and now I think I understand why that is, and we can talk about that later on. But what we attempted to do here in, in our uh, healthcare system was pull those two groups together in an interprofessional learning environment where there was a better understanding of each other. And after doing these courses now for six years and having close to 600 graduates of the course, uh, we've seen a massive cultural change where doctors are now leading the way in, uh, in a lot of decision making at the corporate body. Uh, who, and, and these are physicians who are not uh, in C-suite level positions. They're just driving the change. So that, that's sort of a long answer to your short question. But that's how I got involved, and now it's become a passion, and it's been the subject of, of my recent research and study. So you mentioned that your work in the military has prepared you for this role now of teaching others. I listened to an interview where you brought up the three legs of the leadership school that the military uses. Can you talk for a minute about what those are? Yeah, there, there's three factors in our, uh, the, the, the Army, I'll use the Army example because that's what I know best, uh, has actually a leadership doctrinal manual. Um, and in that manual, 
it describes not only the characteristics and traits of a leader and what a leader should attempt to be, but it also describes influence methods. One of the things that it says early on in the manual is um, there's a three-legged stool to learning leadership. Uh, one of the legs of that stool is what, what they call uh, brick and mortar schoolhouse. So in other words, throughout our military careers, we go back to the schoolhouse at different ranks to learn things about what we're about to do. You know, the, the teachings of a second lieutenant are very dif different from the teachings of a three-star general. But in every one of those courses we attend, there, is, there are elements of leadership put in there. So the schoolhouse is one of the legs of the triangle. The second leg of the triangle is operational learning. So in other words, when you're in a position doing your job, uh, you should be attempting to garner and glean leadership lessons uh, from things going on around you. And in fact, that's the majority of your career, and you should be aware of what's going on. And, and then the third stool is self-study. Uh, there's a requirement in the military for, for every officer and non-commissioned officer to focus time through reading, through study, through uh, self-development, uh, to, to try and learn more and more about the demands of what you think you'll face. Now, at the lower level as a lieutenant, as a tanker, as an example, that's focused on how do you lead a 20-person tank platoon and understand how to exhibit leadership characteristics in a tactical environment. As a three-star general, I was engaging with uh, other countries, with with uh, leaders in government and other uh, allied and partner armies. Uh, and and it, the whole requirement takes on a much more strategic level of dynamic uh, to engage and lead uh, so that you can influence people to contribute to the national security of the United States. The same should be true in healthcare. Uh, and I think both of you are interested in how do you get residents and interns to understand what their role is in this leadership environment and who do they lead and how do they lead them. Uh, that's the equivalent of a lieutenant or a captain going into a, a military situation. Not, not just residents and interns, but we're also focused on medical students as well. Um, Absolutely. But, but Caleb and I were talking right before you came on and he shared with me um, the three-legged stool that you just spoke about and we thought it was quite funny that when we were setting out to like develop the mission and, and goals of our podcast, that they're remarkably similar to what you just described, which to me highlights the importance of just of um, targeted leadership development and the similarities between fields. So I thought it was quite uh, uncanny. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll share, I'll share something that as we design this leadership course for Advent Health, uh, as I presented it to the chief medical officer and said, here's what we want to do. You know, a doctor's, a physician's time is really valuable. So we were going to do these five-hour seminars once a month for a total of eight months. I showed him what the sequence was. And I said, hey, look, uh, his name's Dr. Moorhead. I said, look, Dave, uh, what I also want to do is assign a book a month for them to read based on the subject we're having in the seminar. So really, there's going to be homework. And secondly, what I want to do also is design what we now call uh, an LSA, using an abbreviation, uh, Leadership Situational Awareness Exercise, where at the end of every seminar where we discuss a topic, 
I asked the attendees, the seminar participants, to go back to their place of work, whether it's in the hospital, whether they're a hospitalist or a surgeon or a, a nurse or an administrator, and lift their head up and take a look around the organization to detect the kinds of things that contribute to their leadership. What are they seeing around them? What kind of values are exhibited? What, what types of character traits uh, on the leaders they admire uh, are there? H how are influence methods uh, approached within the hospital system? How are meetings held? You know, how, how do you influence decision making? All of those things are part of it. Uh, and then the other thing we do, I think you, you may have read about this, at the end of our course, I talked our system into uh, flying us from here to Florida with the 50 members of our seminar, and we, we fly to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And, and in that particular day-long session, we spend an overnight up there too, I assign each one of the participants the role of one of the Civil War generals that fought in the Battle of Gettysburg, both on the northern side and the southern side. And through the entire day of walking the battlefield, uh, I'm not trying to make them military historians, but we call that in the military a staff ride, where you can learn leadership traits. So during this, this day-long walk of the battlefield, we talk about decision-making, leadership qualities, and what uh, these people on a battlefield, a crisis situation made uh, to, to help them either win or lose, contribute to their loss or help them win. And then at the end of the day, what we do is we take all the lessons that we learn throughout the day that we see in historical examples, like personalities matter, context is critical, how you communicate contributes to success. And, and there's literally thousands of lessons they learn on that walk. And we say, okay, that was back in July of 1863. How does all of this apply to leadership in the healthcare environment? And it's very surprising the correlation that occurs between a battlefield versus what happens in a hospital. Yeah, I love that idea. And I, I hadn't actually read into that, that you just brought up your trip to Gettysburg, but I, I love that idea of relating what happens in the past to what we can look at in the future. Um, it kind of begs the question then, how do we implement some of the lessons that we've learned in the past to these situations that we have now? How do we bridge that gap? How do you think? Are you, you talking primarily uh, under under the auspices of the COVID environment? Well, yeah, we can talk about that since it's evident and, and pertinent to today. Yeah, well, uh, what we've done within our system, uh, as, we, as we realized things were starting to get worse back in the, the February, March timeframe, uh, I actually had one of our, our graduates come to me, a, a woman who's an ED doc, and, and she said, you know, she's now a chief medical officer, a very young chief medical officer at one of our hospitals. And she called me up on a Sunday afternoon and she said, hey, you know, I, I'm used to experiencing uh, anxiety and trauma in the ED from the time when I was an ED doc. She said, but I've since now walked through our emergency department uh, over the last couple of days, and there is a palpable fear uh, and a palpable anxiety based on what's going on today. And, and she said it's different than just treating the patients. There's an anxiety about how we as doctors might 
catch this disease and how we might take it home to our families. And, and she asked me, she said, could, could you talk a little bit about lessons and how they might apply in this world? So I, I sat down and wrote a, uh, a piece for, her, you know, just some notes because she asked me, she said, could you give us your top 10 tips for a crisis? So real quickly, I mean, literally, it took me about 15 minutes to write it. I sent it off to her. Uh, it then got in, into the uh, healthcare system, and it's since been reprinted in the Journal of Hospital Medicine. And uh, it really is taking the dynamics of a normal situation, a day-to-day, deliberate, go to work, see patients, do things, you know, and, and every day in a hospital has elements of tension and anxiety, but when you're thrown into a crisis, a lot of things change. The way you communicate, the way you address one another, the way you build teams, all change under a crisis. Leaders have to understand that, and they have to be able to adapt to those kind of crises. So what we've done uh, within the last couple of months, I've asked all the physicians who have graduated from our course to keep a journal. Uh, to to journal their thoughts on what's going on on a daily basis and allow yourself as you're journaling to determine what are you learning, what lessons can you apply to the future, what kinds of things do you never want to go back to uh, that are, are part of your normal operational environment. And now that you've seen in a crisis what will work uh, in terms of decision making or communication, how do you establish those as the norms? So th- that's all part of leadership. And I- I'm realizing I may have gotten away from your question a little bit, but I-, I think these are the kinds of things that we try and teach. And-, and-, and Caleb, you mentioned it when you sent me an email asking me to be on, on here on the show with you, is there isn't the formal discussion of those kind of things in most medical schools. And, and I think it would be important to incorporate that art of leadership along with the science of medicine. Because from what I've learned in, in dealing with physicians, that, that there is an emphasis on the science of medicine um, in, in med school and residencies and internships, but there isn't as much of a focus on the art of leadership. And that's where some people feel they're left out. You're preaching to the choir, Mark. Um, I, but- I kind of figured out. I think that's what you guys incorporate, right? Yeah, it's actually it's in our mission statement. Um, but you, you were getting into something about uh, recognizing when you're in a crisis. And, and I want to ask a question that's kind of rooted out of a personal experience that happened to me recently, like within the past few months. Um, I, I found myself in a very like precarious position, not really knowing how to handle it. So broadly, what kind of advice would you give to like a physician who has to deal with a crisis situation, whether it be... Um, like COVID related or like people at the beginning of, of COVID, like when everyone was freaking out and everybody had to like uh, see double or triple the amount of patients that they were seeing in the beginning, like they would normally see um, while being low on, on PPE and everything was gone or someone who's dealing with a right. more interpersonal crisis, something that, that maybe they're, maybe they're dealing with racism in their organization. Like how, what kind of advice would you give people to a physician leading a group in crisis? Well, what, what I say is there's a couple of key elements of crisis leadership. Um, the first one, and we're seeing that in COVID, and sometimes we're seeing a negative example of it, is the first thing you have to understand in, in a crisis is 
you have to push the experts to the forefront. You can't allow people who are just bystanders uh, to communicate what's going on. And, and in fact, in our system, I'll, I'll use an example. Early on, uh, we were talking about how do we communicate with uh, the community uh, in terms of various healthcare issues. And, and there was a discussion about who should be the chief communicator. Should it be the CEO of the hospital? Should it be the infectious disease physician? Should it be, uh, you know, and, and there were a bunch of different choices. The, the key thing, the, the key thing I told, uh, I suggested to our system was do not push anyone but an expert out at the forefront. But it also has to be someone who not only is an expert, they understand the strategic implications of what's going on. So our infectious disease physician, great guy, super doctor, knows what he's talking about, but he doesn't understand the other implications of what's going on within the system. Our CEO, wonderful communicator, uh, just can, can charm the pants off of anybody when, they, when he talks to them but he doesn't understand the medical implications. Mm -hmm. So we had to quickly find a doctor and appoint a doctor who had both the strategic vision, but also the understanding of the disease who we push forward. Now we see that at the national level too. And we see mistakes being made at the national level when some non-physicians are making comments. That's the most I'll say about that. Uh, not to get into the political dynamic, but you really have to have the experts out front. And the second thing is they have to be practiced communicators because in a crisis, communication, truth telling, and transparency, no matter what the crisis is, we can use COVID, we can use racial uh, tensions, we can use political dynamics. It should be, someone should communicate who understands the issues, who has an, a, a, an intellectually deeper view of what's going on, uh, and can communicate with a calm because people are fearful. They don't know what's going on and they don't want to be BS to. Uh, so, so those two things are critically important. And then the third thing in a crisis, what, what, what I've told our physicians is you have to transition from demanding all the information, which by the way, this is the, the tension in a physician or someone who is a scientist because a scientist wants all the information. And they keep saying, I, I can't make a decision until I have 100% of the information. In a crisis, you have to seek and fight for intelligence. And sometimes you have to understand you need to make decisions with only 60, 70% of the information. Because when you make decisions, sometimes it, 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 it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be good enough for now. And, and because people are depending on that. So those are some of the things uh, involved in crisis leadership. Uh, there are many more, but those are the big three in my view. Yeah, I think that's a great answer and something that we've all thought about in the past few months with, with everything that's going on from COVID and like Peter brought up also with race relations and things like that. It's important that we have leaders, that we have good leaders who do those things you mentioned, have transparency with the people they're, they're leading and also be able to make decisions even when we don't necessarily know 
all of the details like with COVID. And that was one of the things that I've thought about a lot is we, at the beginning, we didn't know the details. They were coming in and changing every day, but the st- decisions still need to be made and we still need to keep people safe. And so that's right. the hard and part about being decisions. a leader. Yeah. And sometimes those decisions have to be made in a split second. You can't wait around till tomorrow or next week. Uh, and, and leaders in a crisis need to know that. The other thing, I, 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 you just reminded me, Caleb, of something else in terms of communication. One of the things uh, that as I, I conduct the seminars with our, with our physician leader development course is <laughs> I go back to some of the classics. And what I mean by that is Aristotle. Uh, when, when Aristotle talked about communication, he said we should combine logos, pathos, and ethos, the ability for logic, reason, and passion when we communicate. And they should be an equal uh, measure. Uh, unfortunately, in today's environment, we have a whole lot more passion than we have logic and reasoning. Uh, so when you're the expert, you really have to go back to that understanding that you make an argument, you communicate, you provide information based on those three elements of logic, reason, and passion. You can't give opinions. Uh, you know, that's for other people to do. But as, a, as an expert in the field, you have to stay away from opinions and really go toward the science and the logic and the passion of what you're trying to uh, persuade people to do. And by the way, I'll, I'll put in a pitch. Uh, I think Dr. Fauci uh, is an expert at that. Uh, never loses his calm, never loses his cool, gives the science and the rationale, but he also does it passionately. Uh, and, and as we're seeing in this pandemic, he's becoming more and more passionate as he's trying to drive the information when other people are countering that argument. So mentioning passion, I think it's a good segue into your PhD because as, as an MD-PhD student myself, you can't do a PhD unless you're passionate about something. So um, what made you want to pursue a doctorate? Um, it, it, several reasons. Uh, first of all, I was offered the opportunity. I, I went out to a, I was asked to speak after I wrote my book, Growing Physician Leaders, at a, at a local uh, college here, a local uh, uh, liberal arts college called Rollins College. It's the place where uh, Mr. Rogers went when he was an undergraduate student. That's their claim to fame. Nice. Uh, but they have a, a doctoral program in their business school. So I was talking to a bunch of MBAs, and this professor who invited me out said, hey, you know, you'd be a perfect candidate for our doctoral program. And I've always kind of wanted to get a doctorate. I didn't know what in, uh, but I also knew that example of being a leader is you have to continue to learn and grow every day. Uh, so this would be a good opportunity to learn a lot of things uh, that I might not have otherwise learned. And it turned out to be way beyond what I thought it would be. Uh, and I can talk about that in a second. Um, but the second thing was I had transferred from the military environment into the private sector and I was dealing with a lot of business people, uh, as well as teaching the physician course. So, you know, when part of leadership characteristics are you have the credentials. So I thought, man, this would be kind of cool to get the credentials of a business administ- a doctor of business administration, uh, and and continue to work in the private sector. Uh, 
what I soon learned, truthfully, in the school, they, they not only give you a um, faculty mentor, but they also give you an upperclassman, someone who's gone through the second or third year as your student mentor. And my student mentor was was a, a, a nurse actually going after her D, uh, DM. So they figured we were both in healthcare and that I would learn a lot from her. So she became my mentor. And we were both of the same about, now she was about 10 years younger than I. I'm the oldest person that ever graduated from the doctoral program, by the way. I take great pride in that. I was older <laughs> than all the professors and certainly older than all the students. But uh, one of the things I asked, I said, I said, Rhonda, what, what did you learn uh, in your first two years of this course now that you're a third year doctoral student? And she said, I've learned how much I didn't know about a lot of things. And she said, if you just take that as your advice and your and your approach to the course, she said, you, she said, you will find out a lot of things you didn't know. Now, I went into this thing knowing that I wanted to study something about physician leadership. What I realized was I knew a lot about being a leader in the military, executing leadership skills from the things I had learned in my army uh, background. But what I didn't know is the theory and practice of leadership in other types of industries and organizations, why the research shows that there's a tension between physicians and nurses and physicians and administrators, why that tension exists and there are reasons for it. Um, and I was able to gain a much better understanding of the kinds of things it would contribute to helping physicians become better leaders within healthcare. So it was really uh, a fascinating journey over the three plus years that I was in this program. There's a quote I like by Epictetus that says, it's impossible to begin to learn which, to learn that which one thinks one already knows. And so I love that, you know, even, even though you've written a book about physician leadership, you're still able to kind of recognize that there are things you don't know and there's still opportunities to learn and grow. Well, it, it's interesting you say that, Caleb. Thank you for that, Caleb. But uh, I actually just got an email today uh, from a physician on the West Coast who said, hey, I picked up your book. I really liked it. Yeah, I wrote that book in 2016. That was before I started the program because the hospital asked me to write it. They said, hey, we want to kind of advertise what we're doing here. So I wrote the book in about six months. And I, at the time, I thought it was really good, you know. And, you know, it went out. It sold a lot among doctors. And I, I, I get compliments on it. But truthfully, after learning what I know now, I realized the book is, in my view now, is just okay. It's not all that great because there's so many things I didn't put in it that I know more about now. And I realized that it, there's a whole lot more questions. Um, you know, as an example, a big question is what, and one of the things I'm looking at right now, what, what traits uh, are there among women doctors that are different than men? And, and, and how does it either contribute or detract from their uh, ability to be great doctors? And, and I, I personally think, although I don't know for sure, that, that women tend to possess more traits that contribute to their role as physicians than men do. Uh, so that, that's, that might be an interesting study later on. So what I got from this is that there's going to be a sequel. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm too old. <laughs> Books take a lot out of you. <laughs> I tell you what. I can't, I can't yeah, even I, I would like to write a sequel, but yes, I would, Peter, but I, I just don't know when. <laughs> um, so why don't we uh, take a step back and why don't you tell us a little bit about what your dissertation was on? Yeah, what what I wanted to show, uh, because this this course, this um, doctoral program, in the second year of the course, they require you to do a practicum uh, with another person. So I teamed up with a, with a woman who uh, who actually was a marketing expert, and uh, we I had a subject that I wanted to look at. She helped me with it. But what we did in that second year practicum was we looked at the top 50 nonprofit hospitals in the country, and we asked the very simple question of, what kind of leadership development programs do you have that contribute to the healthcare industry? What I was really interested in is what, not just the overall programs for executive, but how many of them actually had a physician program as well. And whereas, you know, the, the, the survey for the practicum, we, we were able to touch about 30 of the 50 uh, top 50 hospitals. Uh, and got information from them. What we soon found was a, a good many of them had executive leadership programs. Some of them had nurse leadership programs, but very few of them had physician leadership programs. And there were only two that had programs that really looked at interprofessional leadership. How do you combine doctors, nurses, and administrators to build teams? And that's what I'm really interested in. So that drove me uh, to have some discussions with the folks at my organization. And there was a, a, a great many of the C-suite executives who thought that they should not combine physicians and executives in a leadership program. So in, in my doctoral dissertation, what I did is, is um, I went to another hospital that isn't familiar with what we were doing here in, in Advent Health in Florida. And this, this guy who I'd spoken with asked me if I could come out and give a program there for their physician. So I said, on one condition, can we do two classes? What I'd like to see is the difference, me teaching both the classes on back-to-back -back days over a six-month period of time, the difference between a course that had all doctors versus one that had an interprofessional mix on how they reacted to engaging with one another and communicating. My thesis was that both classes would improve in their leadership um, skills, self-reported and what was observed by others, but that the class of interprofessional would improve more. Uh, and in fact, that turned out to be the case. Uh, what we did was self-evaluations by people who were participating and each person who participated had to give me the name of someone, names of someone that observed them, uh, a fellow physician colleague, a fellow nurse colleague, a fellow administrator, plus their spouse or partner. Uh, and we did pre and post test uh, uh, surveys of those groups to see if there was improvement. And what we saw was the, the group that was the interprofessional course, which is something, by the way, that the American Medical Association has been saying we should do more of in healthcare is the interprofessional approach. 
Um, both courses improved in their leadership skills, but the interprofessional course improved significantly better with those who observed them and in their own self-reporting. And, and I think that's because they are forced to communicate outside their functional skills and stovepipes. Um, and it has to do with language, communication, information exchange, and exhibition of uh, professional values in medicine. So uh, that was the study. And oh, by the way, I, I should add one more thing, and I'm sorry if my answers are going on too long, but I'm excited about this stuff. Uh, the hospital I went to, uh, the chief medical officer said, you know, I showed him what I was going to do. We did the IRB process and, and all that. And he said, you know, we've had a rash of suicides among our physicians over the last couple of months. He says, we've had three doctors who have killed themselves. And he said, we, we think burnout is a pretty big deal. And he said, could you put in your pre and post course surveys some questions on burnout to see how this leadership training might affect them. So being a typical doctoral student, I didn't want to expand my study, but these guys were paying me to do this. So I said, yeah, sure, I can do that. And what was interesting is in both courses as well, the self-reported burnout decreased significantly at the beginning, from the beginning to the end of the course. I don't know what accounts for that. But it's an interesting uh, data point. I think it's because these leadership courses allow them allow them some time to reassess their values, their professional ethos, uh, why they became physicians in the first place, and it took them back to a solid grounding that we all lose unless we continue to reevaluate and reassess our life. And our profession. Uh, so that that is an issue. By the way, my 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 thesis advisor, my doctoral advisor, uh, my number one, uh, her her parents uh, were physicians, and she was really fascinated by the result of the study because she had seen her father, not both her parents, but her father was a physician. She had seen her father really burn out in the latter stages of his career as a physician. And she was really fascinated by the results that showed a decreased self-reporting of, of uh, physician burnout. So that, that's my study in a nutshell. Sorry for taking so long in describing it. No, no, it's really important. I think it's, it was, you made a couple of interesting findings, especially the one about burnout. I also think it's quite fascinating. And I've heard a couple other theories about why burnout happens and why certain interventions actually prevent burnout. Um, another one that I've heard about is that after taking a leadership course, uh, physicians will tend to feel more ownership of their work and a little more control over their day-to-day -day lives, and that seems to help burnout as well. Right. I think there was a well, large study in JAMA published about burnout, too. They did like a real big meta-analysis on other, other uh, burnout articles, and it's very variable, so it is quite fascinating. Well, what, what, what I would share with you, uh, one of the design of the course, one of the design features of the course that we established here was the fact we have, I have to explain Advent Health in Orlando. We have 11 different hospital campuses in and around the city of Orlando. So as we selected volunteers to attend the course in the first year, and it's since continued this way, 
we tried to distribute the numbers we selected from those 11 different hospitals. And what we wanted to do, first of all, was create a network of self-support, but we also wanted to show people that other folks were experiencing the same thing you experienced. And so as you go through these experiences that are sometimes depressing and really affect your resiliency, there are other people you can call on. Well, now we have this network of over 600 and, and the physicians and the nurses in our area, they all, they all feel like they're part of something and they call each other up and they wouldn't have otherwise known who other physicians were in their similar fields, but now they do. And as they graduate from the course, I'll, I'll share this with you as well. Uh, we made a big deal about the graduation at the eight month part where uh, one of the doctors had the idea that we should give everybody a new lab coat with their name and physician leader on it. So we did. And so everybody that graduated, all the 50 graduates gets one of those. And I brought in a, a, a shibboleth from, from my days as a military guy, and we created a coin uh, that we give them as they graduate that shows they're a graduate. And we, we give them the requirement that they always have to have that coin on them. And we do the challenge thing and buy each other a drink. And I'm sure you know about that, that tradition in the military. So, you know, it's interesting as you go, as I go around the hospital and see graduates, they always go up and challenge me out. And of course, I always have mine in my wallet because I don't want to have to buy anybody a drink. But it becomes a token that they're part of something that is contributing to the culture and the organization. And I think that's very important in healthcare. And sometimes physicians feel like they're all alone. And not only do we have to create leaders, but we also have to create a leader network to solve some of the issues in healthcare. So I really like that. And I wanted to ask you one more question about your dissertation before we wind up and ask you some of the questions that we usually finish with. But you you talked about how physicians aren't necessarily good at at rating how they are themselves as leaders. And you mentioned one possible solution was uh, interpersonal team building and team learning. I wanted to ask you, why do you think we're so bad at rating ourselves and evaluating our own leadership? And then in addition to interpersonal team building, what are some solutions that you think we can do to improve that? Well, you know, in early discussions with our chief medical officer, when he asked me to formulate the program, uh, I came back to him uh, and I told him I was new to, to the organization. I'd only been here about three months when he asked me to do it. So I, I didn't know healthcare. I didn't know the organization. And I said, hey, Dave, look, give me a couple weeks to, to take a look around and see what I perceive in the organization and in the profession of healthcare. I came back to him and I said, you know, your issue is like the military because you have, just like the military has tankers and infantrymen and cavalrymen and logisticians and intelligence and military policemen, they all have different cultures and subcultures and they're sub-tribes within one bigger organization. the difference is that in the military, we force them to come together. We design schools and organizations where they all work together as a team, even though they may have different cultures. I mean, again, I'm a tanker 
And I will tell you, our culture and our philosophy is very different than my, my partners who are in the artillery world, but we have to work together in the battlefield. So we're forced to come together and learn each other's dynamics. Healthcare has the same thing. And, and I'll just shoot this at you because all your listeners are going to be doctors. Tell me there's not a difference between a surgeon and an ED doc and a family practice physician and an internist, I mean, and a, and a psychiatrist and a neurosurgeon, they all have their unique cultural dynamics in subtribes. And then you add to that the nurses, and even they have different subtribes. And then you add to that the administrators who are businessmen. And if you want to get bigger, as we've seen in the COVID crisis, start adding insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, government officials that are all sticking their finger inside your profession that you own as a doctor. So, you know, part of the dynamics of, of leadership development is helping people understand that they not only have to, they first have to master their own skills as a physician, as a soldier. Then they have to start realizing to contribute, they've got to master other people's skills and get outside their comfort area and understand how other people think so they can attempt to influence them in the best way possible. So that's, that's sort of what we, we did when we designed this course. And I showed Dr. Moorhead, this is what we're going to do. And to specifically answer your question, when I said to Dave, here's what we do in the military, he kind of scratched his head and he said, he said, this is amazing. He said, you work from your earliest days at West Point or in ROTC on building teams by pulling individuals together. In healthcare, what we do is beat any leadership out of our uh, physicians in med school to show them they've got to be the best. So it becomes, in your world, for the most part, and you all are trying to change that, it's an individual sport, whereas in my world, the focus is on building a team sport. And what I think in any profession, you have to build that team sport where everybody is talking to each other and, and, and having a diverse organization that contributes to solutions and problem solving. I really like the way that you highlighted the different sub-tribes in medicine, not, with, not just among doctors, but among all parties. Um, and uh, the, want- the, first, the, the first book I assign in our class for the first seminar is a, is a very skinny book because I want our doctors to read it and, and get them in the habit of reading the assignment. <laughs> and it's called The Leadership Secrets of Attila the Hun. And it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek comedy about what Attila the Hun did in Europe and pulling all the tribes together. And the reason I assigned that book is to say, hey, your job as a leader is to pull tribes together. Now, the way you do that, I, I suggest you not do it the way Attila did it. <laughs> but... <laughs> Find ways to influence people so you can pull the tribes of healthcare together. I think that's funny. I, I think I have to read that book now. But what I, what <laughs> I wanted to ask was, um, how, what do you think medical students and residents and interns can be doing to gain these skills to pull the tribes together? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's hard, Peter. And, and I'll tell you why it's hard. Because if you go on Amazon right now, uh, and Google, you know, say you want a book on leadership, 
there are going to be 170,000 or so pop up. It's the third most popular venue or genre, I guess would be a better term, genre of books is our leadership books. So there's all kinds of experts who give advice on what they did to be a leader. And what I suggest in, in our leadership classes is you've got to figure out, first of all, who you are. What drives you? What are your values and characteristics? What are your foibles? How are you trying to overcome them to be a better person? Because you can't be a good leader unless you're a good person. And then how does that of who you think you are match up with how other people see you? Are, are they two different things or do they come together? Then you have to work on other attributes like communication, um, developing your subordinates. I mean, if I were to ask you two, if you could think of one person that really contributed to who you are today and give you five seconds to think about it, you'd both come back with an answer. Uh, I'm sure. Everybody can do that. Usually that person who has helped you, who has helped develop you, is probably a pretty good leader. But it required them to do different things to touch you in certain ways. Um, so those kinds of attributes and competencies of leadership are actually pretty simple. But everybody wants the secret magic solution of how do I be a good leader? And truthfully, it's just a whole lot of self-assessment. Am I a good person? Am I trying to do the right things? Do I have a set of values? Is what I'm showing who I really am? not who I want to be, but who I am, and how am I helping other people develop, and how are I, am I communicating with them, how am I providing them influence to do the right thing, uh, you know, that's the secret sauce, and maybe that's, you know, I, I try and touch on some of those things in my first book, very simply, uh, maybe that's part of what the second book that you're suggesting I ought to do uh, <laughs> But I guess what I'm saying, too, and I didn't answer your question, how do you do that in med school? Mm -hmm. How do you do that in internships or residencies? Residence, mm -hmm. It's got to be part of the training. It doesn't so, just magically appear. So that begs the question, who's the onus on? Is it on the program or is it on the self? Or is it on both? I, this is something that Caleb and I actually talked about in one of our previous episodes. So you're, I want to hear yeah, your thoughts on this. It's both. I think it's both. I think it's it's the desire. I mean, when we hold our course every year, we don't assign people to go to the course. We ask for volunteers. So that gives you a sense that the people who are, who are filling our seats in that 50-person course every year, they want to be better leaders. They want to learn. Uh, they know they may have shortcomings because I, I don't ever think we get the people volunteering for the course who already think they're a good leader. And by the way, if I can give you one data point from my doctoral thesis, when we did the, the correlation of data, the doctors who thought they were the best leaders in the pre-course, the nurses who were evaluating them actually thought they were some of the worst doctors. The doctors who thought they had a lot to learn about leadership were the ones the nurses and the administrators all said, that person's got it going on. They're, they're, they have the potential to be a great leader. So that self-assessment of understanding is a critical component of all this. 
So you brought up self-assessment. You brought up reading a lot. We want to finish off the interview with just asking you about some books that you would recommend. I know you mentioned there's thousands of books out there and every one of them has, you know, a piece of what good leadership might look like. But what are some that you found influential or you ask your students in your courses to read? Um, just a couple suggestions for our listeners and, and ourselves. Yeah, we... Um, we actually give books. Uh, we give eight books to our, our students for each one of the classes. That's changed a couple of times. Uh, I already mentioned the leadership secrets of Attila the Hun. <laughs> I, found, I found another book in an airport bookstore, which I said, we've got to incorporate this in the, in the leadership course. And it was at Christmas time, and it was a book called The Leadership Secrets of Santa Claus. It was, it was one of those small, you know, 20-page books that you give. And I looked through it and I said, this is great. It's got all the basics of leadership in it. So if you can find that online, um, there's a book that, I, that a guy has given me. Let me get it from behind me here in my fake Zoom background. But it's called, uh, it just came out and uh, a, a physician wrote it. And it's kind of a novel, but it talks about a doctor who gets advice from a patient. It's called... Uh, the Leader's Compass. I'll show it if you can see that. It's fading out in the fake Zoom background. It's by a guy named uh, Robert Underwood. He's a, a, a physician. Uh, I think he's in Arizona or Texas. But it's, it's a fun book to read, and I think most doctors would like it. Uh, there's a book called From Values to Action uh, that helps you determine what your values are and how they contribute to who you are as a person that we assign in the course. Um, uh, those are some. I, I just finished reading a book from uh, uh, my best friend, Marty Dempsey, who used to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, he wrote a book entitled No Time for Spectators, and it's about his journey as, a, uh, as a, an Army officer all the way up to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the principal advisor for President Obama. But it tells stories about leadership development as well as kind of a neat story of his life. Uh, I would recommend that book. But th there are, those are some that I could recommend. Um, let me think some of the other ones. Uh, yeah, those, those, are, those are enough for some of your leaders. And then, and then they can start getting into uh, other books that really, whenever you talk about people, uh, biographies are great books to read. Uh, because it gives you the story of how people dealt with life issues. Um, and, and, and truthfully, other than that book I just mentioned to you by Dr. Underwood, um, there, there aren't a whole lot of books about physician leadership. Uh, I, you know, my book kind of, people try to persuade me not to call it growing physician leadership because it's just a leadership book. But I said, no, no, I want the, the niche specifically of physicians because they don't have a whole lot of books on the market, I don't think, unless you guys know of others that I don't know about. Uh, most of them, not really. They kind of focus on very specific topics like burnout or like managing a team, but none, none broadly about leadership. Right. So, yeah. Um, and with that, Mark, thank you for taking the time to uh, come and speak with us. We really, really appreciate it. And we thought, I thought I learned a lot. I don't know about you, Caleb. Yeah, so, I did as well. That was great. Well, well thanks, guys. And, and I got to tell you, 
what I continuously share is for the first 37 years of my professional life, I was able to spend it with people who were contributing to the greater good of a society as part of a profession. And the brothers and sisters I met during those 37 years uh, were phenomenal. Uh, you know, I don't like to use the word heroes because I think that's been overblown in our society today. Mm -hmm. But they are, were dedicated professionals who were just trying to serve the nation in a certain way. Uh, what I think a lot of people are seeing, uh, and, and it's a great uh, compliment to both of you trying to bring leadership to uh, newly minted physicians, is the healthcare profession is another selfless profession of people dedicating themselves to uh, uh, just things that people on the outside don't understand. Uh, and I have a very different view of doctors today than I did six years ago when I joined this organization. And, and they are really some fascinating people to be around. And they are my new best friends and, and brothers and sisters. So thanks for doing what you're doing. I'll, I'll end my part of this by just saying thank you to both of you what, to, for what you're doing, but also for other members of your profession who are contributing to the health of our nation. Well, we appreciate it. And thank you for coming on the show again. You got it. Thank you. So that's all for today. Thanks everyone so much for listening to this episode of Leading the Rounds. Hopefully you were able to learn something new and get a better perspective of how we can improve as leaders. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow. We work to put out a new episode every other week. You can also contact us and connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Leading the Rounds, or email us at leadingtherounds at gmail.com. See you next time on Leading the Rounds.